I'm not a huge fan of bees. I don't like being stung. I don't really like their presence. They're kind of annoying. They get on my nerves. But I've heard, seems like experts think that they're very important to our ecosystem. And I've heard all this stuff that if bees didn't exist, then we wouldn't be able to eat and we'd all die a slow, tragic death, starving to death. And it would be a very unpleasant sight. And so I'm going to trust the word of the experts and I suppose also the sovereignty of God that bees are important and I'll deal with their existence, but I don't have to like them. I am, however, very impressed by bees, especially honeybees and the way that honeybees operate, the way that a honeybee colony works is something pretty incredible because in this colony you have thousands and thousands and thousands of bees all working together for one purpose. But we also see that there are different groups of bees, that they all have their specific role and their specific purpose, that each one of them matters. And so you have one queen with these colonies. And it's the queen's job basically to make more bees, especially to make more queens. And without the queen, there would be no colony, there would be no hive, because the bees would stop existing and they would eventually go extinct. Next, you have some worker drones. These are the males, the male drones, and it's their job. There's about 300 to 400 of these drones in a colony, and it's their job to help the queen have babies. And so they fertilize the eggs, and so without these drones, there would be no hive because, again, the queen wouldn't be able to do what she's supposed to do, and the bees would go extinct. The next categorization is the worker bees. And this is the biggest group of bees, sometimes between 20 and 30,000 female bees. And these have a very high workload. And so it's the job of the worker bees to go out and to gather pollen so they can make honey and food to feed the little babies. It's their job to protect the queen and the hive. It's their job to even build the hive. And so if you don't have all of these worker bees, all of them doing their jobs well, then there would be no hive because they're not going to be able to build it. The hive would be vulnerable to attack. And the babies wouldn't be fed, and so the colony would eventually die out. And so you have all of these different groups of bees with all of these different skills, all very necessary to the life and the vitality of the colony, all working together for the good of the hive. And it's a pretty incredible and awesome thing. Without the diverse gifts and abilities of each bee, the colony would collapse. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the importance of the oneness of the church. How amazing it is that God makes the church one. How God brings us together from all different places, no matter how different we are, no matter what areas we come from, that it's not about a place or a certain type of people or a certain type of interest or skills or abilities, but God brings us all together and mysteriously through Christ makes us one and sets us up on the common ground that we are one body with one spirit, just as we're called to one hope and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, that we are one. But this unity, this oneness wouldn't be a mystery if we were all the same. It wouldn't be unique if we all looked the same and acted the same and liked the same things and had the same gifts or abilities. It would make perfect sense. People would look at that and say, well, of course they're one body. Of course they function well because they're all the same kind of person. They all do the same things. And so it makes sense that they would all like each other and want to be together and there would be no mystery at all. And so today we're going to look at what makes the unity of the church a mystery as we see the beauty of the diversity of the church 
And how we're all not only diverse in who we are and where we come from and what our stories are, but we are diverse in the giftedness that God gives us and in our role in the life of the church. And we're going to see how necessary each part is to the whole. How every one of us matters when it comes to being one in Christ. And so we're going to be, again, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And today we'll look from verses 7 to verse 12. God's word says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. May God add His blessing and His favor to the reading of His Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Father, we do as always thank You for Your Word and Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy. And God, we thank You that the church is a very unique place where you have gifted each and every one of us individually so that we can come together to honor you and worship you and serve you through a diversity of gifts and skills and abilities and so that each one of us matters and each one of us is necessary to the vitality of the church, but also to the mission of the kingdom. And so, Father, as we read through this passage, as we look through this passage, we just ask that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you for salvation, God, we pray that the gospel will be so clear and present that they would trust in you and that you would break your hearts with your kindness and save them by your grace. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know where you have gifted them and what special, diverse, beautiful, wonderful gifts that you have laid into their lives, God, that you would reveal those to them and so they would know their place in the church life and how they could serve and love and honor you by loving and serving the church and going out and loving and serving their neighbors. Father, for those here who know where they're gifted and they've been using their gifts in the life of the church, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time, Father, I pray that you would give them encouragement, that you would give them a renewed sense of strength, and that you would continue using all of us for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our neighbors as we come together as one body, moving in one rhythm by using our diverse gifts that you have given us through grace in Christ Jesus. And so God, we just ask and pray that everything that's said and done here would be honoring and glorifying to you. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. When the Magi came to Jesus when he was very young, it meant something. It's a very important part of the childhood narratives of Jesus' life because it shows us that from the very beginning, people were aware that there was something different about Jesus. And so the Magi saw his star in the sky and they pursued him because they believed this to be a sign that a king was born. And so they went to find Jesus and they brought with them gifts that were fit to honor a king. But while they knew he was supposed to be a king, 
while they knew that he was special, while they knew that he was important, they couldn't have possibly known exactly who he was. They couldn't have known that they weren't coming to just see a king, but they were coming to see the king of kings who was the one promised to David so many years ago whose kingdom would never have any end. They couldn't possibly know that they were going to see the Savior of the world who was going to, as Jesus said, set the captives free. And as Paul said, offer us salvation from our sins and forgiveness from what held us in bondage. And they couldn't possibly know that this child that they went to bring gifts to was carrying with him and in him gifts far greater than gold and frankincense and myrrh that he would one day give to anyone who would trust in him. So many times when we talk about salvation in the life of the church, we reduce it down to maybe the lowest common denominator or the thing that we think about the fastest. And that's usually the idea that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, that it gets us out of hell. Or maybe we think about it from the positive side, that we think about salvation as just a way to get to heaven when we die, or just a way to have eternal life as the Bible promises us. But we know that salvation includes those things, of course. But it's also so much more nuanced than that and contains with it so many more benefits for the people who believe and trust in Christ. Not only do we have this opportunity to spend eternity with Christ, not only do we have this opportunity and this hope that Jesus gives us that one day we'll be made right and made new and with Christ forever in perfection, but we also have the promise that we're not simply forgiven of our sins, but that our shame is taken away, that our guilt is removed. We're reminded that we are bought into a family and that we bought, are bought into a place where we belong and we're no longer alone, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in our home church, but as we've said over and over again over the past few weeks, across the entire world and throughout the ages, we are a part of this family, a part of this kingdom. But we also have this hope and this promise that when we trust in Christ for salvation, that we not only receive all of these things, but that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives us gifts to be able to accomplish the work that Christ has called us to accomplish. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are able to do that. We're able to walk in the good works that God has designed and prepared for us before the foundations of the world. And we're able to do that out of a gift that God gives us to be able to put that into motion. And here in, verse, in chapter 4, in verse 7, Paul says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that reminds us that there is no single person who has ever trusted in Christ for salvation. There is no single person who has ever believed in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and has been born again, has been made new, has been brought into the kingdom of God, who Jesus has not, through grace, gifted for work in the life of the church and for ministry across the world. That each and every one of us, as we sit here this morning, if you have made that profession, if you have made that confession, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have been saved by His grace, then not only do you belong in the kingdom of God, but you have a job in the kingdom of God. That you have a purpose in the kingdom of God and that you have gifts and skills and abilities that have been given to you precisely for kingdom work.
But it's very important to know that these gifts that we receive at salvation are exactly that. They're gifts. They're not something that we earn. They're not something that we work really hard to obtain. But Paul is very clear that these are things given to us by grace. Grace, that reminder that we are given something not only that we couldn't afford, but something that we didn't deserve, and yet God gives it to us freely anyway. And so because we're reminded that these gifts come by grace, these gifts can never be a cause for boasting or for any sort of alteration to our self-esteem one way or the other. Spiritual gifts very often can be a place of dissension and division and brokenness in the life of the church because pride is a part of who we are. And so sometimes we can look around and we can think about the gifts that we have and we can become a little puffed up because maybe we're really good at doing something and maybe what we do is a little more visible or we have people constantly telling us how good we are at doing these things and people telling us how they wish they could be more like us maybe. And so we start to think, you know what? I am pretty good. I am really good at ministering to children. I am really great at meeting people when they come in the door. I I go to great lengths to talk to people. I am a really good musician. And we could go on and on about all these different gifts and say, you know what? I am pretty awesome. And we start to forget that this comes by grace. And it's not something that we are naturally inclined to, but something that God has given us for his glory and for others' good. On the other side, Sometimes it can be easy to walk into church and look around and say, I wish I could do that. I wish I had the gift of this person over here who is so good at this thing that makes me want to throw up when I think about trying to do it. I wish I had the ability to speak in front of people. Or I wish I was good with kids. Or I wish I was just faithful enough to come and to just serve and to to get my hands dirty and to do some of these things. But I just don't have the ability to do that like I once did. And so we can look around and see all these places where all these people are good at things that maybe we aren't particularly inclined to or gifted in. And we can start to say, why not me? Why am I not able to do that? Maybe I don't matter as much to the kingdom of God as someone else. But the quick cure for the illness of pride is to remember where these gifts have come from. To remember how much these gifts cost and that we didn't pay for it. I love N.T. Wright's translation of Ephesians chapter 4, especially in verses 8 and 9. Because Paul gets kind of weird here and he starts saying all that there's ascension, dissension, and all these words that just kind of blur together. And Paul gets on one of his little backwards talking kind of rants. But N.T. Wright translates in a way that I really felt like I could just palate. He says, that's why it says, when he went up on high, he led bondage itself into bondage. And he gave gifts to people. When it says here that he went up, what this means is that he also came down to the lower place, that is the earth. The one who came down is the one who also went up, yes, above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And when we remember this condescension of Jesus, the fact that Jesus became one of us for us, this big word that we use is the incarnation of Christ, we're reminded exactly how much Jesus thought our gifts were worth. And so if you ever find yourself basking in the glow of how awesome your gifts are, remember that you couldn't afford it. 
that Jesus had to do something for you that you couldn't do on your own so that you were able to accomplish any of, the, any of these things at all. And so if anyone deserves to be boasted, and it's not you, it's Christ. If you ever find yourself looking around and wondering how much your gift could really possibly mean to the kingdom of God, then look to Jesus who once watched a widow put two small coins in an offering plate and said this woman has given more than anyone else who has come today because she's given all that she had. Look to the Jesus who willingly gave up everything for you so that you could have that gift, so that you could use it in the life of the church, in the life of the kingdom of God. Verses 8 and 9 are a declaration of Jesus saying, I love you enough to leave everything. I love you enough to put myself into bondage so that you could be free. I love you enough to bear all sin and bear all hell and to die not only to give you salvation, but to give you these grace-filled spiritual gifts so that you can do what you were designed to do as my children. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus lowered himself to build up the church. That as Paul says in Philippians, that Jesus emptied himself and became nothing and took the form of a servant so that each one of us were able to have that mind of ourselves that belongs to us because of Christ Jesus. That all of us can have the desire to take the gifts that we've been given and give them away because Jesus gave everything so that we could have them. Every single person who is saved by God's grace has been given gifts to use in the ministry of the church that are so important that Jesus came to deliver them to us personally. And so there is no room to boast when it comes to the giftedness that we have to serve Christ. But there's also no room to despair. Because no matter who we are, no matter what we have, no matter what we can offer in the life of the church, it is important and it is vital and it matters. And it mattered enough for Jesus to die so that we could have them. And so I think there is a very constant importance of celebrating all the gifts of the saints of the church of God. And that even means our own. Because this isn't a cause for some sort of false sense of humility where we put ourselves down to lift someone else up. We just remember where our gifts have come from. And so the church should be a place where people are affirmed and encouraged in their gifts. As we're going to talk about in a little bit, a church is a place where you can come and find your gifts if you aren't sure where those are. But we have to be a people with a culture of affirming the gifts in the life of other people and in the lives of ourselves. To celebrate the things that others are good at and the giftedness that God has given. And as we are celebrating others, receive people that are celebrating our gifts as well so that we can all continue to grow in our gifts and utilize our gifts and function as we're called to function. And as we do that, it will be impossible not to celebrate the Savior who gives grace to each one with no exclusions. And so let's celebrate our gifts, let's understand our gifts, but most importantly, let's celebrate the God who gives a diversity of gifts to a church that is one. If you've ever been in a situation where you can ask a toddler to help you with something, you find very quickly that toddlers are very inefficient at doing anything. 
And so if you find yourself in a situation where you ask a toddler for help, very rarely is it that you are asking this toddler for help because they have something special that they could offer that would make the process easier. Very rarely do you ask a two-year-old to help you cook or to help you clean or to go get something for you because you think, you know what I really need? To help this go along more smoothly, it would be great if I had another person here who could barely walk and not very strong, and so they can't really hold a lot of things, and they're probably going to get distracted and probably not do what I ask, and I'm probably going to have to ask three or four times. We don't ask toddlers to participate in what we're doing in our lives because it would be good or helpful or efficient for us. We do it because we know that it's good for them. And so as you're raising a child, you want to ask them to help you cook. You want to ask them to help you clean. You want to ask them to help you do things because the more that they're able to do that, then the more that they're able to learn how to do it on their own. When it comes to God's gifting of humanity and God's calling on our lives as Christians to seek after his calling and to do what he's leading us to do and to partake in his ministry and his mission to the world, it feels very inefficient. Because in this, we have the God who spoke the universe into being, who is saw fit to invite and ask and use people who can't navigate a four-way stop properly to accomplish his mission. It's somehow worse than asking a toddler to help us do things because we are so... There's not even a way to grab the scope of how far off we are from being able to do God's work the way that God could do it. If God saw fit, and if God's only purpose was just to accomplish his mission, then God could do everything that he wants to do, not simply faster than we could, but God could do and accomplish everything that he wants to do in a breath. The same God who spoke everything into existence could certainly make everything right and everything new and call to himself a people and all the things that he wants to happen, he could do it with no time at all, and yet... He chooses to allow us to be a part of what he's doing in the world, not because we are good at it, not because he somehow needs our help, not because he thinks that we bring anything to the table that's missing because God is missing absolutely nothing. He invites us to participate in his work because he loves us and he knows that we need it. He knows that it's good for us. And I can't imagine the patience and the gentleness that takes. Because I know when I've asked our girls as they're growing up, and this will start with Lucy pretty soon, when I ask them to do things for us, very rarely does it go well. And I'm not a particularly patient person. And so the first time I ask, it's very gentle. It's, hey, would you mind going and doing this for me? Can you go help dad with this? And then as they wander off somewhere else, I'm like, no, baby, come back. Do, do what I'm asking you to do. I need you to grab that and just bring it to me. And then the third time, my mouth stops opening, and I start talking with my mouth closed, which is a very unique thing. But you're trying to be very sweet and very patient, but it comes across like, no, baby, you need to go the other way and bring it to me, please, because this has to happen quickly. Because at first it wasn't a big deal, but now all of a sudden time is ticking, and my patience is wearing thin, and I really want them to learn this. But also, I could just do this, and it would be over. But that's not really how God deals with us. 
Because God calls us to do something and we mess up and we fall short and we don't do it correctly. And yet he is still there to gently tell us, no, this is how you do it. This is where you go. And when we fall down, he picks us up. When we need encouragement, he gives us encouragement. When we need correction, he gives us correction because he's not a good father. He is a perfect and holy and good father. And so he allows us to participate in these things because he knows that we need it, but it seems just so very inefficient. And if God had hired me as a consultant, I would say, God, I think you're choosing the wrong people. God, I think you're calling the wrong people. And I would probably add a little disclaimer here saying, I think you're especially calling the wrong people when it comes to pastors. I think you're especially calling the wrong people when it comes to ministers. In verse 11, Paul says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. And earlier we see when we go back to verse seven, that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we put some of these thoughts together. We find that God, through Jesus, has given saving grace to anyone who believes. That when we trust in Christ for salvation, that his grace is sufficient to save us. And that he's gifted everyone for ministry in a variety of ways through a diversity of gifts. But when we add verse 11 in here, we also recognize that he has given some a certain grace to serve the church as ministers of the word, as pastors and teachers, as clergy. And vocational ministry is a special calling. And it seems that everyone that God calls is the wrong choice. And I promise you, this isn't some sort of weird, ha-ha, backwards, you know, false humility thing happening here. But the reality is when it comes to, to pastoring, when it comes to the clergy, when it comes to the ministers of the gospel, there is absolutely no one who is worthy to stand behind the pulpit. There is nobody who is worthy to take the word of God and rightly divide it and discern it and teach it to God's people. There is no one who is worthy to lead congregations and equip the saints of God to do the work of God because none of us are worthy to do the work of God at all. And yet Paul still says that God has given these offices, the apostles. He's given the teachers. He's given the prophets. He's given the evangelists and the pastors to equip the church of God to do the work of God. And again, while it seems like he makes the wrong choice, we know that God doesn't. That God equips the flawed and the broken people to do his work. And it's the role of these ministers to equip the people of God to go out and to do what they're called to do. And God uses those he called as flawed and unworthy as they are for this very crucial and very important task. But sometimes we can get a little mixed up on how we see this all working out. A lot of times we see the hierarchy of a church in almost a corporate sort of way. And so at the top you have Jesus because he's the head of the church. And then right under Jesus you have the apostles and the teachers and the clergy and the ministers. And they're the next tier of authority. And then below them you have everybody else who would be the saints of God. And so it's this downward motion thing. But in reality we have seen very clearly as we've looked at the body of Christ that there is only one head of the church. That Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church and everybody else, we're all down here together. 
And so what God does, instead of having people rule over the church as a secondary authority, what God does is he equips the ministers and the pastors to come alongside the saints of God to work with them and work through them and equip them to go out and to do the work that they're called to do. While there is a certain level of pastoral authority in the life of the church, the most important thing a pastor does is to come alongside the saints of God and to equip them to go out and to do the work of ministry. Now, I don't have to tell you that sometimes this isn't done well. And when this giftedness is used poorly, it is inconvenient and annoying at best, and it is dangerous and destructive at worst. But when it's done well, when it's done properly, when these apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds and evangelists, when they work in the way that they're supposed to do to encourage and equip the church of God, it is a wonderful and beautiful grace-filled thing. And so I do think it's very important. And I know this could come across sounding a little self-serving this morning. But it's very important to pray for the ministers and the pastors of the church. Because it is a distinct and unique calling and there is a very heavy burden placed upon it because we know that even in Scripture it says not everyone should aspire to this because there is a heavy weight that comes with it and you'll be held to a different level of responsibility. But that doesn't make these people any more special. It doesn't make anyone who stands behind the pulpit any more gifted and not able to fall down with sin and shame and brokenness and all these things. And so we should be praying for ministers and clergy and for these ministers of the Word of God. But we also should thank God for them. Because all of us, whether you're a vocational minister or not, all of us have had someone in our lives who has been that minister. All of us have sat under the authority of a, of a pastor and a clergyman, of a person who loves the Lord and who's been given this gift of equipping the saints for the work of the church. And so all of us should be thankful that God has given that to us. I've had the unbelievable opportunity, of course, for my whole life. My dad was my pastor, and he was able to pour all this into me and equip me to go and to serve. I've sat under other pastors and ministers and mentors who have equipped me and given me the gifts and helped me to be able to go out and to do the work that I'm called to do. And each and every one of us have that blessing in our lives because they are gifts from God. And so we should thank God for the work of the ministers of the Word, but also pray that they would be able to do their job well because we are all the wrong choice except not according to God, and that's a very difficult place to be. And so God has given all of us, the saints of God, a diversity of gifts. He's given the church, the ministers of the word, to equip and to lead and to send the church out to ministry. We also have a very bad habit in the church. And maybe it's cultural, maybe it's not. Maybe this has been the case for, for as long as there has been a church. We have a very bad habit and we've almost made it an art form of leaving the work of the church to the professionals. Christianity can very easily become a spectator sport where we want to come in on Sundays, we want to hear some songs, we want to hear a sermon, we want to get our fill, and then we want to go out about our lives, drain the pot dry, and then come back on Sundays and be reaffirmed. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church, the purpose of what we do on Sunday mornings is to equip and to gift believers of God to get up, go out, and to do the work of God everywhere we find ourselves. Church is not an experience. Church is not a performance. 
church is not something that happens for two hours once a week, but the church is a body. And the church is a body made up of many members who have been saved by grace and equipped for every good work and then are sent out to do the work of the kingdom of God. Ministry isn't the work of the professionals, but it's the work of each and every one of us who trusts in Jesus Christ. And we see in this passage of Scripture that all of us have been gifted by grace, that we have been and are being equipped by the ministers of God's Word and most importantly by the Holy Spirit. And so we have absolutely no excuse that when the benediction is offered, it's not time for worship and for the service to end, but it's time for it to really begin as we go our separate ways to take the work of the gospel out into the streets and into our homes and into our places of work and into our schools. Paul in verse 12 said that it's the job of these, these pastors, of these ministers of the word, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. It's each and every one of our jobs to go out and to do the work of ministry, to get our hands dirty for the cause of Christ and for the good of the kingdom, to go do what we're taught in the New Testament to care for widows and orphans, to love those who are in need, to offer what we have, to share everything that we have with the people around us, to love them and support them and to care for them, to take the gospel out and to do the work of an evangelist of sharing our faith and sharing the truth of the gospel with everyone that we encounter, to love our neighbors as ourselves and love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's our job, each and every one of us individually and as one body, to go out and to do the work that God has laid before us. And for us at Redeeming Grace, that starts here in Loganville. That starts by serving and loving our neighbors here in Loganville, Georgia. We're going to have a really great opportunity to do that in our community groups as each community group is going to be in these neighborhoods, in these areas, in these regions in our city. And each community group will have the responsibility and the calling to love and serve those neighbors. To be there for the good of the neighborhood as we're here for the good of our city as a whole. And to actually go out and to use the gifts that God has given us, not just on Sunday mornings, but everywhere that we find ourselves, loving and serving people, hoping and praying that they come to grace, that they come to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. It's also our responsibility to build up the body. Not by simply inviting people to church, not by simply proclaiming the gospel and hoping that people come to that saving faith in Jesus Christ, but it's our job to daily and really minute by minute be focused on how we can build one another up. Taking very seriously those passages that teach us that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. That it's our responsibility to laugh when our brothers and sisters in Christ laugh and to weep when they weep. To have everything in common as the church in Acts chapter 2 did. And when anyone is in need, to be willing to give what we have to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ and lift them up. To affirm gifts, to encourage people, and even to offer correction when correction is necessary. But all of it being out of love for the good of the church, for the good of the body, so that we can all rise up together, lift one another up, and to continue doing what we're called to do. And if each and every one of us don't take seriously our role in the life of the church, then we're not going to be able to do what we're called to do as well as we're called to do it. All of us have the unique and diverse gifts necessary to do this in the life of our church and in the church universal. 
that begins obviously with trusting in Christ for salvation and believing in Jesus and his death and in his resurrection, being made new by his grace and mercy and going through the waters of baptism. That's where it begins. And then we have to identify what our gifts are. And to be able to figure out what God is calling us to do and where our passions lie and where our abilities lie. And maybe that's something that you can recognize immediately. Maybe it's something that isn't very clear to you at first. And as I've said earlier, the church is a great place to find your gifts. And so maybe it's as easy as just asking somebody around you, somebody that knows you really well, a brother and sister in Christ or somebody in the church, and just saying, what are my gifts? What am I good at? Where do you think my passions lie? You know me really well. What's going on in my life? Where do you think I can serve? You can come and talk with with me or any one of our pastors or our ministry leaders, and you can say, "What, what is it that I can do? Where do I fit into this? Where is my work in the life of the church? Where is my role here at Redeeming Grace Community Church? And then we put those gifts to work. And we try to make sure that this is a place where no matter what your giftedness is, no matter where your passions lie, that there is a place to utilize those in the life of the church. And so we have a variety of places that that you can be a part of what's going on right now. If you like doing some behind-the-scenes stuff, if you're not in front of the church kind of person, then we have our our audio-visual team and our design team that works on making everything run smoothly on Sundays. We have a setup team that meets every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock where you can, you can help clean, you can help get everything set up, you can help get everything ready, and we desperately need that. If you like to get in front of people, you can do readings on Sunday mornings. If you're musically inclined, then we have our band and we have our worship team that leads on Sunday mornings. If you love children or if you tolerate children, you happen to be kind of good at children, we, right now we're taking all comers on, on your level of love because you will learn to love them. But if you're passionate about children and seeing children grow up in the gospel, then we have our nursery, we have our preschool, we have our children's ministry, we have all of these things. If you love caring for people in very tangible ways and providing for people, if you love to cook, we have our hospitality team with our breakfast rotation and and beautifying the church and also caring for people when we need meal rotations or bridal showers or baby showers or other kinds of, I mean, not all other kinds of showers, but those kinds of showers. And we have all these places where you can love and serve the people of the church. And we could go on and on and on about all the different places there are to serve. And even if we don't have something in our list right now, which you can get on our church website or print it out, we have all of our ministry teams on some of these documents so you can see what's already going on. But if you look through all of those things and you say, I don't really know how I fit in here, but this is what I like and this is what I'm passionate about and this is where I feel like God has gifted me and this is where I feel like my ministry is, then we can work together and find a place to put that to use. Because we believe that God has put you here and God has gifted you for a very specific cause and a very specific purpose and we will find a way to use that in the life of the church for the good of our city, for the good of the world, and most importantly, for the glory of God. Because God has equipped each one of us. And we are one body, but we are many. And that is a beautiful thing. And He has given us, through Christ, everything that we need to work together, to encourage one another, and then to go out into the world doing the work of ministry as one body for the glory of the One who has saved us by grace and gifted each one of us for ministry out of love and affection. And so we have all that we need. We have Christ. 
We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have the church to encourage and support us. And so we are without excuse. And so if you have been serving for a long time, then continue serving and strive to serve God more and to serve Him better through your gifts. If you're looking for a place to serve, then let's find a place to get involved and serve and start passionately working and doing the work of the ministry so that we can see people come to faith in Christ, so that we can see people baptized, so that we can see our body grow but also that so we can see our body built up through the gospel and through the grace and mercy of Christ because we have that ability and we have that giftedness. So let's get to work.